It's no secret that what we eat plays a huge role in our health. Down to a cellular level, food is what fuels our bodies, providing us with the nutrients we need to function and thrive. On the other hand, poor food choices can have the opposite effect on our health. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the average American consumes about 57 pounds of beef every year. In 2019, Americans consumed a total of 27.3 billion pounds of beef. This number is consistent with the annual national average since the early 2000s. It's fair to say that beef makes up a good portion of the American diet, but what does that mean for our health? And, moreover, for the environment? Over the past hundred years, the cattle industry has adapted itself to feed a growing population. Roughly 97% of cattle in America today are raised on industrial farms. On these farms, cattle spend a majority of their lives in feedlots, where they are fed corn and grains, and in most cases, they are injected with hormones and antibiotics. These measures fatten cattle faster for slaughter, meaning cattle today live shorter lives than they used to. Environmentalists advise people to cut back on beef consumption. They warn of environmental costs like the production of toxic greenhouse gases and high volumes of water usage. These adverse environmental effects, coupled with medical experts' warning of the links between red meat and heart disease, obesity, and other ailments, the problems seem to outweigh the solutions. So the question remains, is there a way humans can produce and consume beef that is beneficial to both our health and the planet? In today's episode, I talk with industry specialists and experts in farming, nutrition, and the environment to get answers and hopefully solutions. First, I spoke with Emily Zeidman, a certified nutritionist who received her master's in nutrition research from Bastyr University. I found her online after several hours of research, and thankfully, she was willing to let me pick her brain. To answer your first question just more broadly, but like directly, is the only way to produce beef that is sustainable for the environment is to do it in a way that is also healthy for our bodies. And the only way that's going to happen is if we have animals eating grass, specifically cows, grazing, you know, grazing on the fields and eating grass. So like, it's kind of the perfect solution really, to have everyone eat grass-fed beef. Zeidman explained that because cows are designed to eat grass, when they are fed monocrops like corn and grains, their digestive systems are disrupted, leading to lower absorption of nutrients and producing lower-quality beef. The opposite is also true, she said, meaning that grass-fed beef is a higher-quality, more nutrient-dense food choice. From a nutrition profile they're going to get more omega-3 fatty acids. So there's lots of research that shows, you know, you take the fat from an omega or a grass-fed cow, you take the fat from a grain-fed cow. Grass-fed cows are just objectively going to have more omega-3 fatty acids. Grain-fed are going to have more of the omega-6 and saturated fats. Um, they're also going to have, grass-fed going to have more CLA which is kind of, it's a, it's a type of fatty acid. It's been researched quite a bit. Um, benefits of omega-3s are pretty much indisputable at this time. 
we know omega-3s are good for inflammation, for brain health, for heart health. Um, at CLA, there's still research being done, but there's some good research showing that it's helpful for heart health, weight loss, diabetes, um, maybe even cancer. So you have more of that in cows that are fed grass. You're going to have more vitamin A, vitamin E, just because this is naturally occurring in grass. Um, carotenoids, so like lutein and zeaxanthin are two phytonutrients that fall under the carotenoids. Um, they're like amazing for eye health, but um, they're antioxidant. So like you're getting, you're just getting this like treasure trove of nutrients from cows that are eating what they should be eating, which is grass. Still, many medical experts report a correlation between red meat consumption and a slew of adverse health effects like heart disease and obesity. So is beef a good nutritional choice, even if it is grass-fed? First of all, let's talk about heart health in general. This whole idea that the types of fat we eat like create increased cholesterol, and then when you have high cholesterol because you eat saturated fat, you get heart disease, you're missing a huge piece of the story, which is inflammation. If you do not have inflammation in your body, you cannot get heart disease. Because heart disease is caused when we have atherosclerotic plaques on the side of our arteries. And that only happens when there's damage to the arteries from inflammation. This is the hard thing about research. You will always find what you're looking for. And I say this to everyone, if you hire me to write an article about why saturated fat causes heart disease, I could write a compelling article about it. If you hired me to write another article the next day about why saturated fat has nothing to do with heart disease, I could write an equally compelling article about it. So it's just never as cut and dry as it sounds is basically what I'm saying. So, you know, when they're looking at studies and people are saying, you know, eating red meat causes heart disease, I would say that is a blanket statement that cannot be taken as fact. Um, eating red meat, depending on the quality, might cause inflammation in your body and the downstream effects of heart disease. But it is my belief. And this, I will say, is my belief. I don't, I, as a researcher, I'm not going to say this is fact because there's a line. Um, if you're eating high quality meat that is organic, so you're not having hormones added, you're not having antibiotics added and grass fed so that animals are eating a healthy diet for them and you're consuming it in amounts that is appropriate. So let's say two to three servings a week that should not be a problem for heart disease. If you're eating red meat the way we do in this country, where you go and get a 12 ounce steak that's conventionally farmed, there are antibiotics, there are hormones, um, that fatty acid ratio is higher on the saturated omega-6 than the unsaturated or the omega-3 CLA, that could set you up for what would look like heart disease. To better understand the effects of grass-fed beef on the environment and its connection with human health, I spoke with a farmer and Pepperdine alum who is seeing both effects firsthand. 
Casey Scherler created and runs ReFarm, a regenerative farm in Oklahoma. She got into regenerative agriculture as a way to heal her body from a disease that left her with little to no mobility in her lower body. By changing her diet to eat clean, grass-fed meat, she was able to heal her body and regain mobility. At ReFarm, Scherler and her husband raise organic, grass-fed cattle and other livestock the way it was done before industrialization. What we're doing is actually beyond sustainable. We say it's like beyond organic. It just is like we are producing food the way that nature intended, right? And like nature intended for livestock to move across grasslands. Like we can't say that this method would work anywhere, but in our climate, in our space, you know, in middle America, in the Great Plains, like we need livestock to be trampling the soil. And I can talk more about sort of the science behind how that works. So essentially before we like colonized America, there were bison and buffalo and longhorns roaming the pasture and they would like all travel together as a herd over, you know, thousands of miles. They weren't staying in one place for a really long time. And so that is what we mimic um, both with our cattle and even our pigs and chickens um, is this practice called rotational grazing or intensive livestock management is another name for it. And so our cattle get moved to fresh pasture every single day. And so what happens is, you know, they're on grass. And so when they typically a conventional farmer will either, and this is farmers who most cattle are either in feedlots or they're on wheat pasture and they're just like let out onto the pasture for, you know, six to nine months and then nobody messes with them. And then they go pick them up and then take them to slaughter or to a feedlot. Um, but when we intentionally move them every day, instead of eating the grass all the way down to the soil, they just kind of mow the top of it. Right. And I like equate this to trimming your hair, how it's like super healthy for you to trim your hair. Um, it's super healthy for grass to be trimmed because it actually it's trimmed plus like cow manure, which gets a really bad rap. But when it's not all aggregated into one place, like it serves as very healthy fertilizer for these grasslands. So if you were to just like leave grass there without livestock on it, it would do the same. It would continue to grow, but we actually like amplify that growth because of livestock's like hooves, you know, moving seeds and like mowing the grass and pooping on it for lack of a better word like we are increasing that ability for grass to grow like tenfold. Chris Duran, religion professor and founder of the sustainability program at Pepperdine, further explains how rotational grazing, like what Scherler implements at Refarm, is good for the environment because of a phenomenon known as carbon sequestering. Cattle are grazing creatures like um, we'd see in, you know, when bison used to roam North America and migrate all over the place or um, gazelles or other kind of large grazing creatures that are famous on African safari kind of documentaries, things like that, is that um, thousands in the case of bison in the, in the U.S., we know there was millions of bison at one point. They didn't stand in one spot and eat over and over again. They were chased around by predators. And they migrated um, because predators were sort of moving them around, you know, kind of uh, uh, 
naturally in the sense of like predators chased you, you moved and then you stopped and you ate for a while, predator chased you to that. Well, that stopping and eating and then stopping and eating and then moving around is really important because um, when you eat the tops of grass and then leave it to regrow, um, it regrows, but it also grows underneath. The roots grow even more fuller. And the root growth then creates more above. And all of that is pulling carbon down from the sky and eventually into the soil. And so, um, and that's what, you know, for example, Casey and Zach are doing on their farm is they're moving their cows around. Uh, uh, Zach, her husband, loves to talk about this. He, he's acting as a predator, basically. He is moving the cows from one place to another so that it has two, I think, I forgot what his rotation was. It's something like two to four weeks that each paddock gets a chance to regrow. And it grows back bigger and stronger and more resilient. And that's mimicking what's going on in nature. But um, there's probably less, it would probably be more than four weeks before an animal would come back. But we're talking about animals that used to graze for thousands of miles and then come back. And there would be this really lush, you know, um, uh, grass or, or other plants that would be left behind. So, but when, when, when animals are just standing in the same place, like some farms have, not, not factory farms necessarily, but just some very small, tiny farm, the animals are eating and eating and eating and all they're left is the nub and that nub doesn't have enough to regrow and the root structure is not good enough to help that regrow. And so then you just basically waste whatever material you have and it's no longer drawing carbon down, it's emitting carbon because once that, that thing dies off, it's gonna uh, respirate. Regenerative agriculture could be the solution to the adverse health and environmental effects of the industrial beef industry. But what does regenerative agriculture mean? And how can we begin to make the switch away from the dominant system of industrial agriculture towards something more regenerative? Anyone can grow food regeneratively, even in their backyard. Like you don't need like you can have a garden. We have a hydroponic garden in our garage. Like there are always options for people to produce their own food regeneratively. So I don't think obviously like access to land is a huge barrier, um, which is another unfortunate part of the system that's been built in our country. Um, but I always think, and we always tell people that you have opportunities if you're just like willing to make it work and do the work um, because it is a lot of work. There's a lot of irony, right? With this like push towards plant-based diets um, because monocrops are equally bad for the environment. I wouldn't say like they're on par to par with cattle and feedlots, but if you're really trying to like choose a diet that is beneficial to mother earth, then you need to be eating locally grown produce, locally raised meat. If you choose to eat meat, which again, like we don't argue that everyone should eat meat. We think people should eat less meat, but if you're eating meat, you need to eat meat that was raised regeneratively. Um, but anyway, I digress. Our vision is that a farm like us and like our neighbors down the road, they're regenerative veggie producers. Regenerative farms need to be small and localized. And there needs to be one every like 10 miles. And that would produce enough food for local communities. And we need to give more people the opportunity to produce food. We need to take it out of the hands of these like big agri corporations. And I say that, you know, my dad runs 10,000 acres and he does a lot of wheat and soy and cattle all in not a healthy way, but again, byproduct of his system. But like, I don't think anyone should own that much land. I just don't. And these are conversations that we have all the time, but 
yeah, it's just, it's sticky. But to answer your question, like, I think so much would need to change in order for that to happen. But I do think that it's possible to feed and it's necessary to feed a growing population by rethinking our food system, prioritizing the planet, prioritizing the soil and recognizing that human health is so integrated with soil health because like most people don't make that connection at all. The market, um, as I understand it, is made up of three entities. It's made up of consumers, it's made up of producers, but it's also made up of regulators. So all three of those play a role in how the modern market works. So if consumers don't buy things, there's no market signals that way. If producers don't produce things, there's no market signals. And then the, the re governmental regulators set certain parameters for how businesses work and how you know land practices are incentivized or not. So all three of those need to work together. I think the the question often is, is like, do we vote with our dollars or not as consumers? Yeah, consumers can send a huge market ripple effect. But, you know, McDonald's purchases a lot more meat than you and I do. You know, McDonald's is one of the world's largest purchases of potatoes. So um, farmers are a lot more happy to sell to McDonald's than they are to you or me. You know, because they know that they you know are going to continue to make fries, burgers and apple pies. So like their purchasing power is a lot bigger. So I think consumers need to be careful in realizing that they're not just competing with each other for, for food, they're competing with large corporations that are turning their food into a processed good that then is, is you know, purchased at another point during the, uh, in the, but some of those hurdles are starting to get lower and lower as, um, you know, these small farms figure out very creative ways to, um, to manufacture stuff, even in, in harsh weather. So mm -hmm. I think we're gonna start seeing some changes in that, but what we're gonna to have to ask ourselves is um, a pretty significant question, which is uh, why has meat been so cheap to begin with? And meat is really, really cheap, maybe cheaper ever before in human history, because in the US, like a few other industrialized nations, we subsidize it by um, making the price of corn and soybeans, which are the primary feed options for most cattle, making that incredibly cheap by subsidizing that. And then that goes into the feed for chicken and pigs and cows, which makes the price of meat drop. And there are direct subsidies that are paid to those factory farm providers that make the price drop even more. So we're not paying the full price for that. And it's not even getting into the environmental costs of, of climate change or health costs <laughs> like societal obesity and et cetera. So if we measured all those things out, we would find that Meat's not just incredibly cheap, but it's incredibly expensive because it's causing all of these other things after the fact. The other part of it, though, that, you know, it sounds different to say, like, oh, we'd have a farm every 10 miles. You know, that's the way the U.S. used to look. You know, cities were smaller. People lived in the rural countrysides. Um, but now, of course, we live a lot more in cities. But the land um, could still be used for farming, you know. And, and so now it's a competition between families that have owned farms for generations, like uh, Casey's, or Casey's family, um, versus transnational corporations that are buying up farmland across the country, and then now corporations own land, versus um, cities now that are looking at, like, how do you make sure that food can get to places when you have supply chain disruptions, like we had at the beginning of the pandemic, when we were freaking out because food that we would normally get from around the world was not getting here. And so there is um, 
a lot of work being done on urban planning and city planning and lots of other things to say like, you know, do you really need this abandoned parking lot or can that turn into like an urban garden or an urban farm, you know? And so uh, while Casey's uh, dream sounds out there, it actually is more doable when we start looking at some of the other pieces of like, you know, as car ownership goes down and rideshare programs go up, you have less need for parking lots, you know, all over the country. Um, you know, now we're starting to look at malls now that Amazon and other online stores are more ubiquitous, like these gigantic chunks of land that have parking lots and malls on them, what are they going to be used for? Well, all of those things could be used to be um, carbon resilient farms and they could be gardens or farms in cities that could have food be very, very local and, and be carbon drawing rather than carbon emitting. So yeah, there's lots of people doing modeling on that work and it's definitely doable um, and it's being tried in, in lots of places around the world. Um, it's just not seen as a super popular thing because we're just kind of used to this model that food is far, far away and um, we live in the city and, and that's actually even changing now as more cities, LA, Detroit, and Chicago and other places, you're starting to see rooftop farms on, on top of you know skyscrapers and you're seeing vertical farming, indoor farming, outdoor farming, and lots of other cool stuff is happening. It's just not um, something that's publicized as much as, as thinking about a farm being you know, way out in the middle of nowhere. So how can we as consumers ensure that we are eating beef that is produced regeneratively, sustaining the planet and our health? Schurler, Duran, and Zeidman all advise that people shop locally, at farmers markets if possible, and get to know the farmers in your area. Ask them questions about their products and see if their methods are right for you. It is a lot more work, and we don't have the luxury of being a part of this like agribusiness system where we're benefiting from commodities and insurance and all of the stuff that like the government has put in place to protect farmers, but like through doing that, it has perpetuated this like very messed up cycle of food production, right? So we never fault, we never fault conventional farmers for the choices that they make because really like they're a byproduct of the system that's been created for them. Um, but our hope is that if we can get surrounding farmers to even set aside like 5% or 10% of their acreage to experiment with regenerative ag, like that would be huge. And I think that that's what it's going to take to sort of revolutionize our food system, essentially. There's actually an, I think it's an app um, in the making. I believe it's called Regeneration Nation that is aspiring to connect consumers to local regenerative farms. Um, there are also certifications. The only one we'd really trust is regenerative organic. Um the problem with that is that it's very, very expensive for food producers to get that certification. Um, and like, like we don't have it because we don't have the capital right now to front it essentially. Um, and so I think really the best, the best way is to just go to your farmer's market and ask like, and you should always, even with veggies, like just ask how people produce their veggies because a lot of people will try and use words or labeling, especially like, like if we think about eggs that you buy at the store, you know, lots of people put free range on eggs. And we tend to think of that as being a good thing, but it actually isn't that much space. I think to get free range certified, a, 
chicken only needs like three feet or maybe it's 15 feet either way it's not free range like to me free range should mean your chicken is just out in the wild doing its thing um but there are so many loopholes with certifications and so i just think the best way is to always connect with farmers and like farmers love talking about this kind of stuff and like we love when people care um and want to learn so and again obviously not everyone has that luxury either but i'm hopeful that as sort of regenerative conversations come more into the forefront in terms of food production that it will become the gold standard and even like more normal and more accessible and whether it's at the farmer's market or in the grocery store. When it comes to beef consumption, Zeidman, Schurler, and Duran all agreed. Americans are eating far too much. I think the only way that we're going to be able to do that with you know, nearly 8, million, 8 billion people on the planet and, and continuing still to go upwards is um, we're going to have to cut back our meat consumption dramatically. I mean, the, the idea that Americans have of eating meat two, three or four times a day, um, there, there's not enough pasture land on the planet to do that without wiping out the rest of the biodiversity that we already have, uh, that we're already doing. So, um, yeah, is it possible? Absolutely. Um, but it's only possible if we would sort of think about it in the way that meat was thought about for many, many centuries, which is it's something for celebrations, it's something for you know funerals, it's something for special occasions in life. It is not an every meal situation. Um, so that, that's going to be the, the thing to be thinking about in that term. It appears that government subsidies, corporations, and industrial farms, also known as big ag, have created a system that prioritizes quantity over quality. This system leaves smaller farms without as much support or protection and yields unfavorable results for both consumers' health and the planet. But there are solutions. With farms like ReFarm, Regenerative agriculture may be the solution to sustaining and even healing our environment. These farms may also provide the solution to the adverse health effects caused by consuming industrially raised beef, by creating organic, local, grass-fed beef that is raised the way nature intended. These regenerative farms are placing the power of choice back into consumers' hands. Thanks for listening to The Graph. I'm your host, Lindsay Sullivan. Ivy Moore also contributed to the reporting in this episode. To our listeners, this will be our final episode as hosts of The Graph as we prepare to graduate this weekend. Thanks for joining us each week to hear the most prominent news stories from The Graphics Newsroom. We thoroughly enjoyed sharing them. Tweet us your thoughts at pepgraphic or send us an email at graphic at pepperdine.edu. Thanks for tuning in.